from a long line of women who own this shit. Welcome to Ladies First with Laura Brown. I'm Laura Brown, editor-in-chief of InStyle Magazine, and each week I usually talk to a legendary lady about what she does, how she does it, and what we can learn from her. But this week's a little different. Here at InStyle, we are big believers in controlling your own destiny, or as I would say, owning your shit. That's why we always ask our guests about the first time they owned theirs. Shit, that is. And by the way, you're going to hear the word shit about a million times. No shit. In that theme, we pulled together a very special episode with moments from interviews with three of our favourite ladies' first guests, like Niecy Nash, who did not let being pregnant keep her from owning one single speck of her shit. Here we go. I often say I have a lot of friends who are actresses, and you birds are some of the toughest ladies I've ever known because you are constantly judged, constantly having to perform, especially when you're younger and you're auditioning and like I have to bounce back and keep going and keep going and keep going until you are firm enough that you can make your own choices. I was in an audition one time in the early days and the people were talking to each other and said, well, she's got a cute face. Do you think she can lose weight? And I was like, I can hear you. Did you actually say something? Yeah, I was like, I can hear you. That could have crushed, you know, someone with less freaking guts than you. I always like to ask, like, you know, when was a time that you remember that you really owned your shit? Like you really 100% on your shit. That sounds like one of them. Well, you know what? I, I remember I had an agent and I was like, hey, I wanted to audition for this thing. And he was like, oh, well, I'm sending this name actress. And he kept telling me every time about this one girl. And, and I literally got in my car and I drove all the way across town. And he didn't know I was pregnant. Oh. And I drove across town and my stomach was sticking out right here. So let me tell you something. I put my finger right in his face. I said, yesterday. That girl was Niecy Nash. And he was like, wait, what? And I was like, don't call me until you get what I just said. So, you know, I just, just standing up for myself and saying, hey, yeah. wait a minute. I'm not doing that. And this is it. And if you don't get it, I feel sorry for you. I have said right. that to people. If you don't see it, I feel sorry for you. We all have these markets as we grow that are, you know, our little timelines of of tallness. Timelines of tallness. Timelines of tallness. That's your the, book. The, yeah, it's called <laughs> Tot. Tot. What was your, what was your time? Um, that sounds weird. Okay, what do I want to know? Whose who's boldness uh, and frankness inspires you? I love uh, Ava DuVernay's boldness because I feel like when you talk, you know, society would lead us to believe if you have not landed on your career path by the time you in your early 20s, it's too late. Right. It's too late for you to course correct in your 30s and your 40s and decide you're going to do something totally different. People always talk to you like your idea is too big for you. Right. So I love the fact that one day she was a publicist and the next day she was a director and she decided I'm going to chart a different course. And I love her boldness and the fact that she's unapologetic about it. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And I'm lucky to be able to call her friend. Yeah. I, I well, love it. was your Instagram or something. It's right around when you got married and like she was over for lunch or something. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to go to that lunch. <laughs> yes, freaking you do. Rad I'm not even going to lie. You do. And eating a salad. You what? do. You do. You want to come to that lunch. I want to come to that lunch. So I want to be the one just going over your front gate like Kristen Wiig and Bridesmaids. Don't worry. 
It won't be weird. I'll, I'll bring my tribute wall. Not creepy. I love Don't your worry. tribute wall. And over there where you have that picture of me right in the middle getting that Walk of Fame star. Tell me about this. Tell me about this day. Oh, my God. That was one of the best days of my life. You know why? Because when I was around seven or eight years old, I was on Hollywood Boulevard with my father looking at the stars on the ground. And I saw a man that I recognized from TV. I said, Daddy, that man is on TV. He said, baby, that's Ed Asner. And I didn't know what I knew him from, but right. I knew I saw his face, you know, Mary Tyler Moore. So I don't know yeah. what I saw him on. But Legend. I ran over to him and I was like, listen, I know you're an actor and I'm going to be an actor. And my name is going to be right here on this ground. He was like, yeah, get out of here, kids, Graham. <laughs> and I was yelling when he walked away, remember my name. And, and, <laughs> and I felt like in that moment, I already knew. I'm like, I could feel it. I'm going to get one of these. Boom, get into it. I don't care who don't believe me. I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you. And when... Time came for me to get that star. I sent him a letter. You did? I was going to ask you, what did you, what did you say to him? I actually talked about it on a talk show. And he sent me a letter and said, I'm so glad that you didn't let a crotchety old man step on your dream. And of course, I know your name. And then he drew, hand drew a little star and wrote my name in it. I cried my eyes out. And then I wrote him back and said, will you please come to my star ceremony? And so okay. I couldn't look at him out the corner of my eye oh because my the full circle moment was too much. I couldn't look over because That's I didn't want to cry while I was speaking. But it was beautiful. And Cedric, the entertainer who yeah. uh, played my TV husband for five seasons and Ryan Murphy mm -hmm. got up and spoke for me. And it was just the most beautiful day. It was just a manifestation that I was literally like dreams come true. They absolutely come true. I enjoyed that day so much. And then later on, I was staying across the street at the W and I come back and I literally stand over my star like I just hatched the egg. I didn't want people to step <laughs> yeah. on it. I was like, don't touch it. Don't walk on it. Don't do anything. This is... <laughs> just like, I've just birthed this, actually. So I'm just going to leave this hospital. Yeah, Don't worry. What am I going to name it? Oh, I'm going to name it me. When was the last time you went? Have you been by it lately? I went, I went this summer, actually. I took Jessica, um, my better half, to go visit my star. So we went this summer. Okay. I want to ask, what are you ambitious for? I would like to do something on a very large scale that would impact people daily. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible that talks about getting your daily bread. Sometimes when you think about it in the in the long term and far down, it can feel very overwhelming. But I need just enough for today. And if there is a way to impact people so that they have just a little bit to tuck in for today, that would leave them better when they leave me than they were before they came. That would be the goal.
Now, Melissa McCarthy is not only one of the funniest women you'll ever encounter, she's also one of the most down-to-earth. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't earn her shit. No, 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 no. Have a listen and you'll see. How did you feel when the New York Times named you one of the 25 greatest performers of the 21st century, Melissa McCarthy? I truthfully felt like my dad somehow was allowed to make the list. (laughs) I was like, Mike McCarthy made a list and lost his mind and put me on it. I mean, I still am always like, God, I hope I get another job at some point. So to see that list and be on it, I just, I couldn't process it beyond. They got to 19 and they're like, you know, let's call Mike McCarthy and see if he wants to throw somebody's name into a hat. And he's like, what about my daughter, Missy? Like, that's that's how it hit me. I was quite uh, shocked by it, for sure. Well, actually, your dad uh, put your name on it, Sonia, Sonia Braga. Oh, interesting. Interesting. He's a, he's a big Sonia Braga fan. He really uh, is. That was I, She was first, and I was, like, his third choice. Obviously, it's weird, but what does that mean? Seeing outside, how people see you from outside. I love what I do, but I don't think of myself in that way at all. Fifteen years ago, if you would have said, like, oh, by the way... You and Ben are going to be able to write and make movies and like the dumb stories that we used to do, you know, on the stage at Groundlings Improv Theater in L.A. It's like you're now going to be able to do that same thing, but for like feature films. We would have been like, really? Like, is that is that possible? I still slightly feel like we're putting on shows, you know, like our scrappy and just the way we do things still kind of feels very grassroots. I think of us as circus people that we just kind of travel around and we're putting on a show, but I don't think about it as like I would ever be put into that category. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way. I just, it's like getting getting an invite to a party where you're like, oh, I I didn't know they knew I existed. (laughs) If I start to think about that stuff, I think you go slightly daffy. It's a strange one. I always think any of any uh, of my active friends is, is sort of this inside and outside of yourself. One, you're inside yourself as a person and outside yourself in a role. Yes. I always find it quite interesting when people say, you know, oh, well, of course you have a public life. Why do people seem surprised you're an actor? But then when you think about it, at least how I perceive it, and I think I'm sure I'm not alone, I've chosen to be an actor. I'm quite happy with myself, but I also... I wouldn't know how to play myself. I'd be like, I I, I don't know. My chosen profession is to completely remove myself and to step into the shoes of someone else. So it is the opposite of like, well, if you want to be an actor, you want to be known. And it's like, no, no, no. That's something that's been put on us. And I don't mind people saying hello. It's not that I'm like, oh, I hate that side of it. But it's a funny thing of, I went into acting because I find other people more interesting and I love delving out of myself and into someone else. So then when the when the light gets shown on myself as opposed to a character, it feels like it's off topic or something. First first time you felt like a successful actor. When I lived in New York in my twenties, I lived with Brian Atwood and we were one building over on the third floor walk up from Joe Allen's, which is a restaurant that, you know, everybody after the theater goes there. And I uh never went inside. Because I was like, I'm not an actor. I can't go inside Joe Allen's and tell him I'm an actor. I can't do it. Like, it's it's not for me yet. And it was so silly. We lived there, like, at least a year. And it wasn't until years later when I was like, I'm ready. I'm going to go to Joe Allen's. I'm like, 
And then I remember getting there and like, there's my old apartment. There was where the the pimp, who also was a heroin dealer, lived right below us. And then I do remember when I walked in, I was like, oh, it's like a pub. (laughs) This whole time? I I thought, I just thought it was going to be more like, you know, something from like Auntie Mame. And then we had like a burger or something. I was like, "Eh, okay. (laughs) When was the first time you owned your shit professionally? I think once we started making our own movies, I think also on on Mike and Molly, realizing that like I had a position to either make things better for everyone and I had the mouth big enough to do it or nobody else was in a spot where they could take the risk. And I realized part of my good fortune was also I have to I have to take the fall and take the risk where other people can't stand up. I think you can only do that if you completely are aware that you are, you are responsible for everybody. I'd rather take the extra work and know that we're including everybody and everybody feels valued than just kind of scooting through the day. Well, that's ownership, isn't it? And that's what you do. That's what you work towards. I take it as a, a huge gift when I see something that I don't think is okay and that I can actually go and change it. It's an amazing thing to be able to have. You know, Ben and I always say, we, like, we want to show, show, the, show the world we want to be a part of. And then I feel like everybody feels ownership in that. And you're like, that feeling of group accomplishment when you like, you go to work and whatever it is you do, whatever you make, if you're, it's about not being like, I can do it alone. It's me. I'm like, no, 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 we need, I need everyone. I like the feeling of like a group victory. So you and Ben have been running a cult for a, num- yes. a number of yes, years. Yes, I'd love to talk to you about it. <laughs> I got your flyer. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, I'll get, I'll, I'm just going to wire you the money tonight. Yeah, if you just can give me your bank routing number, uh, I will be off to the okay, races. Okay, 681. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Ladies First with me, Laura Brown. In this episode, we're revisiting special moments from interviews with our fabulous guests. And when I say special, I mean we're talking to them about the moments when they really claimed their power, took control, spoke their truth. In other words, owned their shit. To wrap up this episode, we couldn't think of anyone who owns their shit better than Tarana Burke, the magnificent founder of the Me Too movement. What I do with these is I like to distill each lady as I would a perfume, a fine fragrance, an essential oil, and um, do a quality that I think of when I think about about you, or that's something that I admire. When I think about you, uh, what I want us to start talking about is power. Because I I think about power when I think of you, but what is interesting is that Me Too was founded on the idea of supporting women and others who have lost their power. Yeah in a particular instance. So could you talk to me about it from me too, from that perspective, and then we can get into what power means to you. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely it. Right. I think, and I've said this before that I think what people don't understand about experiencing sexual violence, and that's 
the breadth of sexual violence, even if it's no actual physical violence involved, is that for a moment you lose, for a moment or several, however long, you lose the, the power to make decisions about your body, right? And that's one of the powers that we have innately. I get to decide if I raise my hand or lower it. I get to decide if I walk or don't, right? To stop or start. And mm-hmm. to lose that power is is scary, it's debilitating. And and so the power to make decisions about how we move and how we, you know, show up in the world is extremely important. And so everything we do is about reestablishing that power, mm-hmm. bringing people back to themselves, right? Because that power is central to who we are. And so it may be a different person when you arrive back to yourself, but we definitely do the work of bringing people back to their full selves. Um, You've been an activist and organizer, et cetera, for a long, long time. And you started Me Too in 2006 and worked on it consistently until, of course, uh, the hashtag uh, uh, reploded, re-exploded, that's the word, reploded in 2017. And what has... This is funny because you have worked in two very vastly different iterations of this movement, you know, one more quiet, more consistent, and this more out and more consistent. Um, What did power mean to you when you started it? Uh, And just culturally you weren't weren't known um, versus versus now. You know, I think that I think about power also and how it functions. Mm -hmm. And so it was very powerful to me before people knew what Me Too was, before it was obviously like this global cultural phenomenon. It was still very powerful to watch people's lives change, right? To watch people realize that this thing doesn't define them. To watch people go through the motions of going from not just like, you know, victim to survivor, but from survivor to empowered person, Right. It's one thing to realize that you survived the thing. It's the next thing to realize that there's power that you can draw from from this thing that you survived. And so I I look at the time before me, too, and I think about all of these girls and I've, I've heard from so many young people and who are now adults or adults that we worked with who said, I remember when I first got that T-shirt from you or I remember when you came to my school or I remember when I was in that workshop and I never said this before and I was able to say it. That was, it's like, you know, when you see the light bulb go off on on like cartoons and stuff, it's like watching somebody realize that they have power because they've been robbed of something. And it's not, it's the act of it robs you of, you know, the actual violence that people experience robs them of power. But it's also a secondary um, theft, if you will, that goes on because the people who don't believe them, the people who try to silence them, the people who don't give them space to heal... All of that continues to rob you of power. So for me, I would define power by the, the people who I watched right. regain it and, you know, beforehand. And right. quite honestly, it's the same <laughs> after. Yeah. We just watch it on a bigger scale, right? Like those women who came forward um, against Harvey Weinstein in the beginning, I just, it just, it always bothers me that. Well, a lot of things bother me, but a lot. But one of the things that bothers me is how people characterize them in relation to me and to me and to the movement. Like they were out to viciously take something from me, or they were out to do. When these were, when you talk to these individual human beings, 
they individually were terrified that this incredibly powerful man uh-huh. would forever take their power from them, right? He had already done it once, but that they would step out into the world and they wouldn't, they wouldn't be supported. They wouldn't be heard. Yeah. They would be, you know, and so what the movement did was sweep in and give them, help them regain that power. And, yeah. and so it's just on a larger scale. So I just think that, you know, it's, it's an actualization of how much autonomy and authority we have in our, of our, over our own lives uh-huh. is the extent of power that we exercise in the world and speculate about things that happen to me. And it's, it's really, it can be really painful sometimes. That's a heavy weight to carry. And when that heaviness becomes a bit much, what do you do? You know, I am, I, I'm still kind of figuring that out, but I've gotten, so here's the thing. I'm 47. And so around the time when I turned 40, I just, I, I got really serious about boundaries in my life, right? It's like, I'm 40 years old. I get to say no, blah, 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 right? And then Me Too goes viral and that kind of gets blown to hell because I can't be closed off to people and how do I protect myself? But but I'm going to tell you, the p- survivors are not the issue. It's the trolls. Yeah, <laughs> of I, course. I have a much harder time dealing with the the people who are vicious and mean and also the people who are cowards who would never say the shit they say on social media to my face. I'm a survivor. I'm a public figure, blah, blah, blah. I'm also a Black girl from the Bronx who will really, really bring it to you if I have to. And people forget that too. (laughs) I look at these comments sometimes and I'm thinking... If we was riding a train to work and you were sitting next to me, you would never say no bullshit like this to me, ever. You wouldn't say it yeah. to my face. I, I come from a long line of women who own this shit. So I, I'm sure this was really early on. Like in school one time, they, my teacher was talking about Lincoln freeing the slaves. I think it was uh-huh. in the sixth grade. And my teacher, Miss McCary, I'll never forget. She was very dismissive saying... Um, I just, I, I said, you know, my grandfather said that the Lincoln didn't free the slave. Abraham Lincoln didn't free the slave. And she was like, oh. well, I'm sure your grandfather's a scholar, but that's not exactly what the, what your textbook says. Ooh, and I got so upset. And I went home and I told my granddaddy and my mom. And my granddaddy gave me a book. I forgot which book it was, but my grandfather gave me a book to come back. And it was some really heady book to outline. And I came back and raised my hand. I was like, my grandfather, the scholar, told me to tell you. And I read the passage from the book. And and she tried to be all like, oh, I'm so glad. And, you know, I'll give you extra credit and blah, blah, blah. I was like, nah, what you're going to do is apologize for trying to play my granddaddy in this class. I know what I, I, I said what I said. I was like, I don't need extra credit. I just need an apology. This has been Ladies First with Laura Brown. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Savarese, Danielle Roth, Anne Ford, Anne Kane, and Erica Wong. And thanks to Brian Anstey, Molly Stout, and Haley Mason at InStyle. You can find out more at InStyle.com. Find us on Instagram at InStyle Magazine, on Twitter at InStyle, and you can find me on Insta and Twitter at LauraBrown99.